What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. You might know I sound a little off. I do have a cold. I have a cough drop in my mouth right now as we're doing this, so my voice may not be as good as it normally is, but don't worry, it is not COVID. It's just your standard run-of-the-mill cold. And I feel fine. I just still have a little like mucusy, congestiony. I don't know if that's too much information. Maybe it is. Could you describe your fluids in a little bit more detail? If you really want me to, I I certainly can. Absolutely. Yeah, we're coming off quite a run of fun, ironic sicknesses. Uh, we also were knocked out by a stomach virus a couple weeks ago, and this is just like the perils of having a kid in daycare. I think. Yeah, you pick up every single germ that's out there. Luckily, they're all non-COVID, but we are also a fully vaccinated house, except for Arthur. He's too young to get the vaccine, obviously. See, there you go. My voice went out again. And anyway, long story short, we are here. We are back with another Midnight Myth episode. Super stoked to talk about it. We haven't done an episode like this in quite some time. You may recall, as we were gearing up for Marvel Endgame, We did a whole series of Marvel character case studies. We did Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, and Hulk, if I recall correctly. That sounds about right, yeah. We are back doing another MCU character case study. And this time we are talking about everybody's favorite black-haired, green-color-wearing, robe-wearing, trickster God of Mischief, Loki. This is our Midnight Myth Loki episode. Yeah, so we're not doing another Avenger. We are doing one of the great Marvel villains turned anti-hero turned maybe like superhero. Uh, We're, yeah, really excited to do this. Obviously, we're just coming off of a fantastic and super fun uh, series on Disney+. Plus. Uh, called Loki, and we are super excited to talk about the general arc of the character, what led him to be the star of his own show, and where the character may be going in the future. So yeah, thanks uh, for listening. And so just to let you know how this is going to work, we will be spoiling just about all things Loki. So that is all the Thor movies, 
the Avengers movies, as well as the Disney Plus TV show Loki. So if you haven't seen those things or that you're on your to-do list, I would highly encourage you to pause the Midnight Myth, watch all the Loki media out there, and then come back to us. Yep, good idea. Anyway, before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you here at The Midnight Myth. We are over on social media. We're on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com, and that is a great place for you to find blogs, extra content, a link to our merch store, and our Patreon, uh, and you can also drop us a line through the website, The very best thing that you can do for the podcast, though, if you are enjoying what you hear, is to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and drop us a five-star rating and a review. Just a few words about what you like and why you like it really helps us to find a new audience and get out there and share the podcast with the rest of the world and the multiverse. And if you really loved us, tell a friend. And if you hated us, tell an enemy. Just tell someone. To listen to The Midnight Myth. Uh, we love Ka. We just did our last episode on Eyes of the Dragon. The response has been phenomenal. We have a poll up on the Twitter of at Wheel of Ka for the next book for Steve and I to read. Right now, it would appear the mist is going to win. I think the poll might have expired by now. Actually, I don't know. The poll may have expired, but if you didn't get a chance to vote and you want to go to that Twitter thread and vote, We'll still count it into the uh, regular voting, but it looks like we're going to be doing The Mist next. Word. I voted for The Mist, so I'm very excited. That's great. You know, we had a lot of great books, so it's a win-win because we're going to end up reading an amazing Stephen King book one way or another. So, And the idea is to get through all of them. So if your favorite doesn't win, maybe it'll be the next one. Exactly. And the last poll we did, we did the one that won. And then we did the one that was the runner-up. So we might do that again. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk all things Loki. This is not going to be a briefest to brief recaps in the traditional sense. Loki sets up as the villain in the first Thor movie. He usurps the throne from Thor and tries to kill the planet of the Frost Giants and genocides them to get his father's approval. And then he floats away on the Bifrost, presumably dead, only to then come back again in the Avengers movie where he is the main villain armed with a scepter from Thanos himself. He tries to conquer the earth and he fails. But through this, the Avengers do finally assemble and they become the team they need to be. He's in Thor dark world where he is imprisoned in Asgard. And in order to help defeat the dark elves, Thor breaks him out of prison because Loki knows a secret way in and out of Asgard that even Hamdel, the seer of the gods, doesn't know. So, and in that he fakes his own death and at the end of Thor Dark World has presumably usurped the throne again, but is pretending to be Odin as opposed to being Loki sitting on the throne. Then we have, um, I almost said Love and Thunder, pardon me, Thor Ragnarok, where Loki comes back. Because he has usurped the throne, Asgard is in ruin He unintentionally lets his sister, who is banished to the underworld, Hela, out, who then goes and slaughters everyone in Asgard, which ends up triggering Ragnarok. And by the way, he and Thor end up being banished at a planet called Sakaar. But by the end of Ragnarok, 
There is a little bit of redemption to Loki. He and Thor kind of make amends. Thor admits that he has always loved his brother, but he also says, you're stuck in the same cycles. You're refusing to grow and change. I know your moves ahead of time now because of that. And we actually see him take up somewhat of a hero role. And then in Avengers Infinity War, he ends up trying to trick Thanos and ends up trying to assassinate Thanos to save the Asgardians, which fails. And Thanos kills him as Loki's last words are, you'll never be a god. And Thanos says, no more resurrections. Then we have Avengers Endgame, in which the Avengers go back in time to steal the Infinity Stones to try to unsnap the universe that Thanos had snapped, creating a variant Loki who branches off into a new timeline. And that's where we get to the Loki show. Long story short, there's the Time Variance Authority managing the proper throw of time, trimming off Nexus events which cause different multiverses to trigger in order to prevent multiversal anarchy and war. And there are several Loki variants out there, one of which is a female version of Loki named Sylvie. And Loki and Sylvie end up teaming up to try to take on the TVA, converting one of the TVA's analysts, Morpheus, on their side, by exposing that the TVA is kind of a fascistic, lying, manipulating society. The timekeepers are like Wizard of Oz, animatronic robots that aren't really controlling the proper flow of time. And then they end up meeting a variant of Kang the Conqueror. Loki and Sylvie battle with each other. Loki just says that he loves Sylvie and he doesn't want her to be hurt. So he doesn't want her to kill Kang the Conqueror, which could potentially trigger multiversal war. Sylvie ignores him, does it anyway, kills Kang the Conqueror. The multiverse is going crazy. Loki gets back to the TVA to find that he is now in an alternate reality where his friend Morpheus, who he converted away from the TVA, doesn't even recognize them. And instead of seeing statues of the timekeepers, we see statues of Kang the Conqueror. Just want to correct you quickly. You were saying Morpheus. It's Mobius. Oh, wow. Sorry. Yeah. Totally different character. Very different <laughs> franchise as well, but understandable. Thank you. Yes, it's Mobius, not Morpheus. I wow. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Wow. lot to recap there. And I think you did valiantly. I don't remember, you know, 90% of that stuff. So this is, again, your talent showing through. Yes. Except that I uh, switched Mophius and Morpheus, so apologies there. Thank you for correcting me. No worries. Hopefully the internet won't roast me alive for that error. It's uh, it's not a good one. But since the baby is napping in the next room, we will not have time to edit and change that, so we're just going to roll with the error. Yeah, we're just going to go, go, go. I have a question for you, Laurel, to kick this off. You know, when Marvel first started to become the behemoth that it is, there was a lot of conversation that the Marvel Cinematic Universe had one fatal flaw, and that was, quote-unquote, the villain problem. Most Marvel movies in the earlier phases, as many of you know, Marvel plans out chunks. We are now in the MCU phase four, so there have been three phases. A lot of people have talked about the problem of the villains. This is largely in reference to Marvel phase one and phase two, and anyone that discussed the Marvel villain problem, all of them, you can Google it, YouTubers, podcasts, essayists, pop culture detectives, whatever, they would always caveat, they have a villain problem except for Loki. Yeah. We all love Loki. And I think it's evident that we all love Loki, presumably 
Loki's been the most popular of the TV shows. Uh, I don't think Disney has released hard evidence of that, but there certainly is more talk about Loki than the other two shows. Everybody seems to have enjoyed it. It appears to be the most popular of them. So my question for you, why? Why is Loki so loved? Why is this character so prolific that he goes from villain, as you said, to like anti-hero to presumably now hero? Why do you think this character is so popular, arguably one of, if not the most popular characters in the MCU? I think that's a fantastic question and one that we can take many different paths uh, to try and answer, going back all the way to the inception of the character in mythology or to the inception of the character in comic books or the inception of the character just in the MCU. And I'll start with just in the MCU. I don't think anybody anticipated the life that Loki was going to take on past the Thor and Avengers movies. I don't think even Marvel knew what they had on their hands. You know, Tom Hiddleston originally auditioned for Thor and you can see some of his original test footage, which is very weird and kind of amazing, but he is just such an excellent casting. And I think you know, not necessarily the obvious casting, but he embodies that character so well. So part of it is certainly the charm of Tom Hiddleston, but there's something about the character that is just magnetic, that we just want to see, we want to be part of, we want him to be part of stories. And the villain problem that you're describing, typically the problem that people have with Marvel's villains is that they tend to be throwaway characters. They tend to be fairly one-dimensional without a ton of really interesting backstory or motivation to do what they're doing. They typically want power for power's sake, or they have some kind of a shallow grudge against the main character. And then more often than not, they are the main character inverted which I think can be a really effective way to craft a villain to say, take your, uh, your main character and then put them in a similar super suit that has the inverse powers or have them have inverse characteristics. I think that's absolutely a valid way to craft a character and sometimes can work, but it is so formulaic within Marvel that it became really tiresome. I think to see that happen in Iron Man, to see that happen in Ant-Man, etc. And Loki is not that. He's not Thor with a different hammer. He's not just the inverse of who he's fighting. He is very much his own fully fleshed out and really magnetic and fascinating character to watch. In mythology, he's a trickster. He's a mischief god. He is someone who is constantly poking holes in the established order of things. And he takes on that role in Marvel as well. He takes your expectations and he upends them. He's charismatic. He's interesting. He is cool. And he's also terrifying because we can't always anticipate what his actions are going to be or what their consequences are. So I think that's just a very simple way of summing up why we wanted to see more of him, why he keeps coming back. And if you keep manifesting this character, if you keep bringing them back, then you have to evolve them somehow, right? You, you can't just have them do the same thing over and over again. You have to have little variations. So even though every time he comes back, he stabs somebody in the back and then fakes his death and then shows up again grinning 
teasing a sequel. Like we absolutely see him do the same thing again and again, but there's always a little variation and a little bit of a step forward and a little bit of a reason to keep him coming back. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Undoubtedly, Tom Hiddleston is magnetic in his performance in Loki. And that is a huge part of the reason we have fallen in love with the character. And I don't think you can overstate how important that is to the Loki character, that this actor just really became Loki and is so charismatic in his portrayal of the character. And I think, you know, Mobius says this to Loki in one of the earlier episodes of the Loki series, that Loki's role within the sacred timeline is to push others to become the best versions of themselves. For example, he goes to try to conquer Earth. He could have probably easily outdone and destroyed the Avengers before they formed a team, but he had to in his grandiosity and pomposity. He had to toy with them and manipulate them so that they knew he was better, and that directly led to them overcoming their flaws, coming together as a team, and then defeating him. So there's this idea that our heroes are only as good as they are because the villains push them to become their heroic selves. And Loki performs that role beautifully. In the first Thor movie, Thor is angered because he isn't king when he wants to be. And he acts out like a child. And But Loki is the real, true, immature child here where he ends up stealing the throne creates these incredibly complicated schemes and is willing to blow up a planet just so his his adopted father could pat him on the back. And meanwhile, Thor, in his exile, learns humility. He learns the lessons that Odin's trying to teach him and then becomes closer to what Loki wants to be, which is a good king, and earns his father's respect, whereas Loki ends up faking his death only to come back. So there is this... You know, a lot of people have talked about the loops, the cycles of Loki. Thor himself says to Loki in Ragnarok that he is trapped in a cycle, unwilling to change, always manipulating. The show Loki, in all of the different ways that we can analyze and interpret it, one of, I think, the fascinating ways is that it is very much the psychoanalysis of this character. This character has a alternate versions of himself, these fractured psyches. There is this gigantic organization that is designed to control all of these different fractured versions of Loki in order to preserve the one single version of Loki that there needs to be. And in many ways, the TVA operates as the super ego where the variants are the ego And then we have all of these rumblings of different unconscious things coming out. You have Eliath, the literal, like the literal monster, the storm that eats everything at the end of the void. You have alligator Loki symbolizing his alligator brain. You have child Loki symbolizing him as a youth and the child Loki who actually becomes king, e.g. the tyrant king. So you have this incredibly in-depth psychoanalytical view of the character Loki. And I think I'd like to really try to understand part of the reason 
of Loki's appeal, I think, is because he is written in the most psychoanalytical of terms. He is so deeply flawed, and he has so many things broken and wrong in him that his journey to try to fix some, if not all, of those broken things is one of the reasons it is so captivating and so personal. And we keep coming back for him because every time, every installment, every movie, there is the chance at a redemption. Like there is the moment where he maybe succumbs to the fact that he loves his brother or that he maybe admits that he was wrong. And then he smiles and tricks us again. And we're like, ah, you got me, Loki. But we want to see it. I think that point that you just made about how Loki is really just there to be the agent of change for others, is there to push others to become their best selves is such a good point, especially when we think about, you know, tricksters in mythology. And we'll have lots to say about this. But one thing that I think that echoes is that frequently in mythology, while tricksters are certainly, you know, causers of destruction and chaos, they also can have this dual nature as benefactors of mankind, of humanity, or of some peoples or tribes. Uh, And I'm thinking specifically of like Maui in Pacific Islander mythology, who is the one who brings all of these things to humanity, who brings food and sunshine and fire. And then I think of Prometheus in Greek mythology, who is the fire stealer. He steals fire from the gods to give to humanity, and he makes humanity the best versions of themselves, and then is imprisoned in a time loop punishment where an eagle eats his liver every day. So how much is that like Loki, who even though he maybe doesn't have the best of intentions, he's not doing this because he wants to make others better, but his actions have the consequence of making others reach their full potential while he gets stuck in these punishment loops. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, you mentioned a little bit about myth. Let's let's talk if that's okay with you, a little bit about the Norse myth traditions. Yeah, please. That the Loki MCU is based on. So it's worth noting we have certainly talked about Norse myths before on the podcast. We've had a lot of episodes where that has been relevant. So we might tread some ground that we've done before if you've listened to every midnight myth. But Loki is a god in the Norse myth tradition. Norse myths are increasingly frustrating to pin down if the question is, what did the ancient Norse people actually believe? It's really hard because the ancient Norse, the medieval Norse people were not a literate society, so they did not write down their beliefs. They didn't write down their myths. So you have to piece together archaeological evidence that you have, but there are two amazing medieval sources of Norse myth, the first being the Prose Edda, that was written sometime around 1222, so in the 13th century, by an Icelandic poem historian and lawyer named Snorri Storlson. I could not make that name up. And then there is also the Poetic Edda, which is probably written around the same time. No one knows. The author is unknown, or authors are unknown. These two sources, and these two sources alone, are the only sources that we have about Norse myths. It's our only written documentation to get a glimpse into what the Norse people believed. 
it's worth noting both were written in Iceland in a colony that not from where these myths originated and both. So how it worked is Iceland was a colonized place of the medieval Norse people. So the medieval Norse people, the Vikings, as we like to call them, they discovered Iceland and they made a settlement there and it turned into a thriving medieval colony. So separated from the homeland, there are two Icelandic poetic traditions that teach us what we know about Norse myths. Another super important point here, they were Christians. This was written probably about 100 to 200 years after the fall of paganism and the adoption of medieval Catholic Christianity in all of the Icelandic and Scandinavian kingdoms. So the era of Viking is very much over. The time in which people were worshiping and celebrating these gods is very much over, which begs the question, how do we know these two sources got it right? And the answer is, we just don't know. The one thing we can say about Snorri Storlsson is we get a glimpse into why Snorri wrote what he wrote, and that's because he saw these stories fading away and wanted to preserve them, thought that they were an important piece of his culture, and that if he wrote them down, it could also serve to teach people, if they like these, how to write poetry and how to write history. So it's a part how-to guide to teach people how to write in poetic verse as well as to preserve these stories out of fear of them disappearing. So what is Loki in the ancient Norse sense and tradition? We commonly would call him a trickster, a deity of mischief. His role in the stories is always playful, destructive, and manipulative. There is like for, and if you want a really good, easy entry point into Norse myth, I highly recommend Neil Gaiman's North Myths. He takes these medieval sources and then he rewrites them in a sort of modern voice and a modern language. The audiobook is narrated by Neil Gaiman. And I often just put this on if I just want something to listen to that makes me really happy. It's very accessible and very, very good. But Loki is constantly trying to outthink and outwit everyone. And he's constantly getting into hijinks. These hijinks sometimes lead to really good things like the forging of Mjolnir, like the building of Asgard's walls. It can sometimes lead to disastrous things like birthing the creatures that would eventually cause Ragnarok and destroy the world. Loki, he ends up in the Norse myths killing the invulnerable Baldir, which is the starting point of Ragnarok. When Baldir, the invincible god who cannot be hurt, gets killed, that is when Ragnarok officially begins. And Loki ends up marshalling his children as the weapons to fight the gods of Asgard and to destroy them and to destroy Yggdrasil and Midgard, destroying the entire world. And he does so simply to do so. He does so because of spite. He does so out of malice. He doesn't do it because he has some Thanosian designs of like, I need to make the universe better. He doesn't do so because he's like a red skull trying to make a master race so that humanity can be perfect and ruled under the thumb of Hydra. He destroys the universe to destroy the universe. 
In this, he also creates the conditions for the universe to be reborn and for this cycle to repeat itself. The Norse myth, the end of the world, is not the ultimate end. It is the rebirth of the new world, which would then repeat these cycles. So Loki is the engine by which life, death, and rebirth happen. Now, life, death, and rebirth is a constant mythological refrain, and we say that a lot on the podcast. It's worth parceling out what that means. We often, us modern people, we think ourselves so smart. We think ourselves to be the smartest of the smart. After all, we have smartphones and airplanes and central air conditioning and birth control, all of these amazing technological things. We are so smart. All of these modern things that we have are rooted at least in part in the ancient human's ability to observe patterns, to understand that there is a central order to the universe, to study that order, and to be able to unlock its secrets so that we can make accurate predictions about what can happen so that we can improve the human condition. This is the role of the ancient pharaoh as much as it is the role of the modern technologist. These things are not so epistemologically separate. They are, in fact, are kind of one of the same. And the role of a Loki, the role of this character in the Norse myth, is to be a sort of purveyor of these secrets, a knower of all things arcane, but also all things technological, and to be the safeguard, however Loki is stunted. Loki can't grow. This knowledge, this power that Loki has, it can only be used to destroy. But that very destruction is necessary for the rebirth to occur. Oh, that is amazing. That is so incredibly well put. And in discussing how Loki's role in the mythology plays out, especially when it comes to the cyclical nature of the destruction and rebirth of the world, you can see so much of the MCU's Loki in it. And there's a frustration that comes with it. You feel that frustration that the character must feel, which is like, I have this rage or I have this desire to cause destruction or I have this desire to maybe make myself feel good and it keeps having these unwanted consequences and it keeps perpetuating the same cycle. And you can see that in the MCU's Loki as well. And then you have a frustration watching him. You have a frustration because you want him to do better. You want him to break the cycle. You want him to change rather than watching everyone else change around him. So incredibly well put. And it just, I think, captures the emotions of watching this character through his cycles. Yeah, so I read this really cool book. It's called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by um, two psychoanalysists. They are practicing Jungian psychology, so they are students of Carl Jung named... Um, Moore, Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, and right? Douglas Gillette, thank you. And in it, it identifies four psychic building blocks, archetypes, subconscious energies that are identifiably masculine and that they are the building blocks of masculine psychology. So the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. Each one, when accessed in its full potential, can help someone become a full and complete grown man. But there are certain phases that you go along. So there are the uh, infantile or boy phases, 
and then there are the the grown-up or man phases. And in each of those phases, they have a bipolar dysfunctional form. So there is the king. The king starts as the divine child. But when the divine child is stunted and doesn't grow, he becomes the tyrant or becomes the weakling. Same thing with all the other archetypes. Now, the magician archetype in its infantile bipolar dysfunctional form is the trickster. And what they argue is that the trickster energy that lives in us is someone that is unwilling and unable to get out of youthful psychological mentalities, is a purveyor and guardian of the magician energy. So someone that is both into uh, as much into magic as they are into technology, but the trickster wants to tinker and destroy and to bring things down simply to do it. The trickster energy can be positive because it can expose pomposity and grandiosity. It can, it can humble us when we are trying to go too far in our magician energy where we could become what Moore and Gillette call the, ma- ma- the manipulator. The manipulator is like that arrogant doctor who doesn't want to tell his patients what's really going on because he doesn't think the patient understands. The arrogant manipulator is like the lawyer who overcharges their clients and doesn't actually tell them how to get out of their legal problems. It's someone that's accessing the magician energy, but simply to manipulate others. They are purveyors of knowledge and wisdom that others do not have, but they don't use it to better others. They use it to profit for themselves and they manipulate. Well, the child version of that is the trickster. The manipulator is looking for profit. The trickster is looking for destruction for destruction's sake. That's why it is part of the quote-unquote boy psychological part. We understand that the trickster, Loki, is identified as the god of mischief in the show and in the tradition. He is a trickster. He is stuck in this boy mentality. Much of Loki's modus operandi, what is pushing him through the narratives, is the fact that he is a boy without a father and his only father figure didn't actually love him and did not love him in the way that he loved his natural-born son. That is an actual true thing that happened to this character, Loki, and that is something that causes him immense suffering, and that is the focal point of his trickster energy. That's the place that he is stuck in. And what I like about what this show has done is it has exposed that, in particular, when he is trapped in the loop memory with Sith and cis hair. And when he realizes, I do these things for attention, and I'm a bad person. And Sith tells him, yeah, you are, and you'll always be alone, which is his greatest fear, that because he is accessing inappropriately the infantile shadow form of the magician energy, the trickster, he is trying to get the attention that he craves, which makes it impossible for him to ever be anything but alone, which is his greatest fear. Amazing. Yeah, so the trickster in Morin Gillette's estimation is basically a child acting out for attention or for destruction or because they're testing boundaries, right? So it's it's a kid with a magnifying glass, you know, seeing what happens to ants because I'm testing the limits of this knowledge that I'm gaining of the universe. Would he, should he take the full magician form, then he becomes an initiator, right? He is the purveyor and like 
holder of extraordinary knowledge and he helps others across that threshold so that they may find the most you know powerful potential of themselves and he does so selflessly that would be his full magician energy but then we see you know this character in loki coming to terms with the fact that he has been a child acting out and trying to learn how to overcome that fear of being alone. We see that especially in the void at the end of time when he's meeting the other variants. And our classic Loki uh, is telling us that he got everything he ever wanted. He became a ruler of this planet. He you know, got rid of everyone who bothered him and then lived and ruled on his own and got lonely and missed his brother, like truly admits that at the end of the day, I love my family and I wanted other people to love me back. And having that experience, going through everything that happens on the Loki show, and then especially meeting face-to-face with those variants who are vocally expressing their loneliness, allows our Loki to go hand-in-hand with another version of himself through the ultimate threshold to, you know, the end of time where he meets he who remains. I think that, you know, one of the most important things for us to talk about is the love that blooms between Loki and Sylvie, because if we're looking at it psychoanalytically, you can read it a number of ways. You can read it as this is a narcissist expressing narcissism because the only person that a narcissist could truly love is another version of himself or is just himself. So this is just an obsessive self-love. Or you can maybe read it in a more productive way, which is the way I choose to read it, which is, yeah, Loki, Loki's hated himself for a really long time. As much as he self-aggrandizes, as much as he feels, you know, he should be king and he should be bowed down to and there should be statues built of him, he does this because he kind of hates himself And by the end of this story, he's able to actually look another person in the eye who is another person, is functionally someone else, but is also a piece of himself and say, I love you and like express true selfless care for someone else who is also himself. So looking at himself and saying, I don't hate you. And also I can look outside myself. I don't know if that makes any sense, but for me, it feels like a completion of his character arc in the sense that he is able to finally forgive himself for his wrongs and open up to the possibility of actual selfless compassion. If we go back to the Moore and Gillette argument, they argue that both the masculine and feminine energy forms are implicitly psychologically baked into all of us. These archetypes do exist. And if we look at the connection between Sylvie and Loki, between Loki and Loki, and the taming of Elioth, I do not read their connection to each other as narcissism at all. In fact, I look at it as the polar opposite. Narcissism is itself a, it's a personality disorder. It is destructive. It is narcissism that traps Loki in his infantile trickster form, the character on the show, not necessarily the Norse myth, but it might apply there too. But the character in the show and in the movies, narcissism is the thing he must overcome. And the way to truly overcome your narcissism is to genuinely love yourself without judgment. The narcissist hates themselves. That is why they aggrandize. 
They don't do it because they love who they are. They are putting on a show because they secretly do hate themselves. Loki recognizing that he is the monster that parents warn their children about. That not only is he a monster orphan, he's also a runt. He doesn't even get to become a giant. He is a misshapen runt of a giant raised by his enemies without an identity and without a, uh, a, a true sense of who he is. And that traps him in this trickster energy where all he does is destroy to destroy. And this is a great story mechanic to help all of the heroes around him become better heroes. But this does nothing for that individual who ends up in Thor Dark World in pain, alone, not even being able to be nice to his mother who dies. And he ends up trying, um, by the end of Ragnarok, he ends up still just betraying everyone. And here we have a show that says, look at your life. Look at your loops. Look at this. There are countless versions of you and every single one of them is destructive. And the only one that we will allow is the one that dies at the hands of Thanos. Everything else must be trimmed like branches off a tree. And once he is confronted with that and he sees a version of himself more powerful, his desire to learn who Sylvie is is mirrored in him getting in touch with his own energies. So Sylvia, she touches the archetype of the warrior and she is out there willing to fight and to destroy and she is obsessed with this warrior archetype and she wants to burn down the system, not in a trickster way, but because she believes this system is inherently corrupt and that this system is destroying lives that it's purported to be saving and maintaining. She wants to fight the uh, oppressors. Loki seeing a version of himself able to put a cause ahead of their own ego and self-aggrandizement is the start of him recognizing how deeply broken he is. And in the end, when they are fighting in the presence of Kang, uh, it doesn't call him, he who, he who remains. He who remains. He's Kang, yeah. What is so telling about how healthy it is is when Loki throws down his blade, lets Sylvie put it, the, the, the sword to his throat and says, you can kill me, but I just want us to think for a minute and not act impulsively because I don't want you, Sylvie, to be hurt, which is another way to say, I don't want to hurt myself by acting impulsively. He is that point accessing all four of these building blocks of the male psyche. He is both warrior, magician, king, and lover. Lover in the respect that he loves Sylvie. Magician in the respect that he is steward of this secret knowledge, the knowledge that the TVA is a lie and that it is run by Kang the Conqueror to, to protect a timeline to stop a universal war, a multiversal war. He is king in the respect that he is calm and centered. He is willing to die, but he wants to help lead Sylvie through a bad decision. And lastly, warrior in the respect that he is willing to fight and lay down his life for this. So he accesses all four of these things successfully and becomes a complete and healthy person in this moment. One who is aware he's going to die. One who is aware of his true inner power. Power so great it can tame the beast of the void, Eliath, and can come face to face with this 
human godlike figure of he who remains and could choose to slaughter that figure should he want. And he urges caution. He urges urges Sylvie and him to not act impulsively, to try to think this through, to realizing they're at the end of time. They don't have to do anything they don't want to do. They are masters of their own destiny completely. And it is Sylvie who is acting in a dysfunctional form. It is Sylvie that can't let her wounds go. So in this respect, I can't read his connection to Sylvie as narcissism because I think it pushes him to a full level of growth that the character has never accessed in any Loki story in the MCU prior. And the cruel irony of all of this is that at the moment that he finally balances all of his archetypes and becomes a full and complete, balanced, healthy person, he gets pushed through a time door and knocked out of the storyline altogether, back to the beginning and into a different timeline. Horrible. Um, Amazing, amazing point that you just made there. And my brain, uh, a whole bunch of Nexus events happened and I ended up with a bit of a galaxy brain here, but there are a couple of points that I want to make in response to that. And one of them is, you know, how much this story and how much I think a lot of the phase four Marvel stories are engaging uh, really intimately with trauma in ways that they haven't before, which we talked about a lot in our WandaVision episode, but clearly um, Loki and Sylvie and every Loki's position in time now is a result of childhood trauma. And that's something that you don't get in myth because myths are ancient and people were maybe subconsciously engaging with trauma, but were not actively engaging with psychological issues in the way that they constructed their myths. So there's something cool about being able to revisit a mythological character and be like, well, he is the way that he is because he's engaging with childhood trauma that it is really difficult to break free from. And we do see our Loki start to reconcile his over the course of his arc as he reconciles with his brother, as he has a final moment with his father, as he defeats his sister. You know, we absolutely see our Loki start to reckon with that, but Sylvie has not reckoned with that at all. And so her anger and her warrior nature is her acting out the fact that she hasn't been able to reckon with her trauma, the fact that she was pruned at a young age. I mean, a horrible traumatic event. Uh, She has never had the appropriate outlet or the appropriate ability to to reckon with that. Um, So yeah, definitely a super interesting, you know, aspect of the, you know, Marvel engagement with mythological storytelling. The other thing that I wanted to bring up though, is that I, I don't disagree with you about, Sylvie being a warrior, but I would also argue that she may be as trickstery as they come in some of her motivations and in some of the things that she does. Because at the end of this story, when we are with He Who Remains and we're given a choice between preserve the TVA, preserve the lie, preserve the sacred timeline for safety's sake, so that we can all know that we have a certain amount of security, even if it means giving up our freedoms. So the choice here is between not determinism and free will, because it's confirmed here that free will exists in the universe. There just happens to be a bureaucracy that stops us from making our own choices, even though we have the ability to do so. The choice is between free will and authoritarianism, free will and fascism, if you will. 
Free will is not safe. Free will is dangerous. Free will is chaotic and free will is destructive because if we can make our own choices, then we are branching our timelines and we're heading off towards multiversal war. Faced with that choice, our Loki, who has balanced himself, chooses you know, to, to step back and say, maybe it's okay to have safety, even if it means giving up some of our freedoms. Sylvie, however is not interested in that because for her, freedom is more important than safety. A very kind of trickstery uh, energy in my mind. She says in an earlier episode, the universe wants to break free so it manifests chaos, essentially saying that we, Lokis and Loki variants, exist because the universe wants to be free and we are the agents of that freedom, even if that freedom tends to be destructive. So if you're a trickster and you're playing pranks or you're cutting Sif's hair or you're starting Ragnarok or you're causing chaos and destruction, but those things are supposed to happen, maybe you're not really a trickster. But if you're faced with the choice and you decide to plunge the universe into chaos, you decide to branch the timeline, you decide to kill he who remains and start total multiversal war, then I think you're like the real trickster energy. You know what it reminds me of is, years ago on the podcast, we talked about the movie Pan's Labyrinth, one of my favorite movies, which lives at the intersection of this fairy tale fantasy coming-of-age story and also this you know, harrowing war story about... Franco's fascist Spain, a really interesting, you know, mashup of, uh, of genres there. But one of the things we talked about on that episode was the difference between a labyrinth and a maze. And in most presentations, a labyrinth is what's called unicursal, which means it has one path that leads in a twisted manner to one singular center. So you have no choice. You follow the same path, even though it seems to be unpredictable. You land at one place. It's a sacred timeline. A maze, on the other hand, has twists and turns, has forks in the road, has different choices that you can make, and every choice could lead you to a dead end, could lead you to the end of the maze. There's no telling what's around the corner. The maze is dangerous. The maze is chaos. The maze, every choice leads to a different outcome. In this case... Sylvia is saying, screw the labyrinth. I'm going to cut down some hedges and turn this into a maze. Bring us danger, but also bring us freedom. Interesting thoughts. I would say if we are going to take and use as the like psychological guiding lens, the book King um, Warrior Magician Lover, that no, Sylvie doesn't conform to the trickster archetype because I think she's more mature. Uh, the trickster archetype is infantile. It is the boy version. I think she is a too mature and too strategically well planned out and B she would be more of a freedom fighter, a trickster, a, a tricksters, a, a trickster is I've just discovered how markers work. So I'm going to write everywhere on the walls in the hopes that mom and dad get mad because they're not paying enough attention to me. Whereas the warrior Think of the warrior energy, not necessarily like um, like Thor or like Richard the Lionheart, but think of the warrior energy like Martin Luther King Jr. Think of the warrior energy of taking a, a system that is oppressive 
and wanting to tear it down, but wanting something better in place. Sylvie wants a universe that is manifested with free will, that doesn't have a bureaucracy over top of it. She doesn't want to do that simply for the sake of vengeance. That is part of it. But it's also because she believes that the universe should be free and that the universe would be better if it were free. You know, so in that respect, I don't think your point's wrong. I think it is absolutely, it depends on your definition of the trickster term. Right, because we could take the psychoanalytical perspective of Moore and Gillette, or we could take the, uh, you know, more vague and international and multicultural trickster of mythology, which has just a wide variety of definitions. But either way, I think we're, we're seeing us playing in the waters of the archetype and multiple archetypes. You know, one of the things that is interesting, a lot of people have talked about the show Loki as a conversation of determinism versus free will. And I think you hit on this pretty, pretty astutely. Determinism is the idea that all of life is predetermined. We yeah. all follow a set path and we cannot deviate from that path at all. This idea became philosophically problematic um, mainly after the advent of Roman Catholicism and the rise of imperial monotheism in the Roman state and then the early medieval world. And that is because the nature of God was settled upon as being all-knowing, all-powerful, and benevolent. Omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omni omniscient. omniscient. Those three things. That is what God is. But this then presents a problem, and that problem is if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, God knows what we're going to do before we do it. How can we be free, especially when the moral system of Christianity says you need to make a choice, and that choice is between righteousness, right action, or sin or ignorance. Yeah, how can I be punished for sin when sin was predetermined for me and vice versa? Even if you before you get to the heaven hell reward punishment system, how can there be sin? Right. Itself if God is all-knowing, all-powerful and good in his very nature, why is there sin? Why so I obviously can't choose to have sin. Now St. Augustine was one of the early writers who wrote about this extensively and said that God doesn't create sin. Satan creates sin. And Satan and people, people making individual choices because they fall out of line with God's love. So if you are in line with God's love, you are not going to sin. But because you have these disorders of love, you could potentially be tempted by Satan and sin. Now, that's a very crude and simplistic overview of that. So please, and I'm not an expert on it, but largely speaking, that's held. People are like, oh, okay, this works. This is good. So yeah, God can be all of these things. Plus there can be sin. Flash forward to now. And now with the study of physics, there's this other theory of determinism being like, well, if we are all bodies in motion set forth, governed by fundamental physical laws can we say be said to be true, or do these laws govern every aspect of ourselves? Right, Newtonian determinism. Essentially, you could, if you were smart enough and had like a big enough computer, write out an algorithm that could predict the entire future just based on physical principles. So whether it is the belief of in you know an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, or whether you're following you know a more modern uh, materialistic physic 
physical nature of it, the question is, hey, are we actually free? You have that versus free will, which says we are independent agents in the universe that have the capacity to choose for ourselves, and hence we should be responsible for our choices. I don't think this show, Loki, is at all about that. Not at all. I think that is a misinterpretation of it to its core. Because if there were no free will, there could be no multiverse. Yeah. Nexus events would be impossible. Everything would flow on the predetermined um, timeline. The very fact that there can be variants means that there is free will. In fact, this is echoed by the time that Loki and Sylvie get to the end of time, and we have the he who remains, the god of the time, right? This time lord, for lack of a better term. He goes, you know, I kind of lied. I don't know everything that's going to happen. Right now, I've got no idea what's going to happen. Making Loki and Sylvie in that moment completely free and independent agents. Yeah, this show absolutely takes as a given that free will is possible and that we have it. It just imposes the time variance authority, this fascist authoritarian regime that is so determined to keep the sacred timeline intact that it puts limits on our free will. So that is not that's different from saying that we don't have choice. That's just saying that systems can be put in place that exchange freedom for security. Yep. It's saying we do have free will and it is in and of itself a bad thing. So we must put constraints on that free will. And we are going to take those constraints to their logical and most powerful conclusion, which says every aspect of our lives needs to be understood and controlled by a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy will act with ferocity it will not include rights. It will not give people due, due process. And it will suppress and murder and kill to protect itself. And it will lie at its very nature and core about its own existence as long as those lies help maintain its own power structure. Which I think is an interesting counterpoint, again, to Norse mythology and to Loki's arc and Loki's loop within the myths. Because if you take those and you see the cycle of uh, the birth of, of the world and Asgard and the nine realms and then the slow driven movement towards Ragnarok, which happens again and again and again as it's destroyed and reborn, we have to take that and assume that that is determined, that that is destined, that that is predestined and that there can be no variation. So that Loki is not in charge of his own actions and is not in charge of the tricks that he plays. But our Loki and our variants in the MCU absolutely are. They can form as many branch timelines as they want, and if they can take down the TVA, it'll be chaos. But by God, it's going to be punk rock, and it's going to be freaking beautiful. At least that's what I think. Because you know what? Nothing matters. Dance while you still can. You know, I, that's a great point. One of the things that I've, I'm most disappointed in the show, in its final episode, which I did think was the weakest episode Oh, of agreed, it, yeah. I loved everything up until the final episode. Yeah. Is the final episode seemed to suggest that authoritarian control over time and people and freedom is actually better than letting people be free. 
it seemed to suggest that Kang was right to do what Kang did and Sylvie is wrong to do what Sylvie did. And that if you let people be free, the only chance, the only logical outcome is the destruction of time itself through like these insane multiversal wars. And that I found deeply problematic living in a political time where authoritarianism is on the rise and a lot of quote unquote free societies are flirting with authoritarian or authoritarian like leaders or regimes to say that maybe it's okay that we give up all of our freedoms for security because if we allow ourselves to be free, it's just going to be chaos. And the fact that Loki and Sylvie's sort of rift at the end is the nope, the TVA is wrong and I won't see otherwise. And Loki being like, well, maybe it's not. And maybe we should think this through for our own safety. Maybe our own safety is more important than our freedom. And that to me seemed very antithetical to the spirit of the episodes before, which we're all like, let's expose the mystery and the, we all knew the TVA was corrupt from the moment we saw it. We're like, they are in stormtrooper outfits. They're disappearing people that are fighting back against the bureaucracy. We all knew it was corrupt and we all knew it was evil. And we all suspected that there was like a Kang, the conqueror behind it. And to end the show on the, he was kind of right. It seems like he was right and Sylvie was wrong. To me, really betrayed, I thought, the spirit of the show, which was individual freedom is good. You should let these variants go. They shouldn't be controlled by this organization. And now it's like, oh no, maybe Kang was right because now Loki's in this new timeline. Nobody knows him. And Kang the Conqueror is going to rise and become the next big bad of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is to say it's all just going to loop back again to this oppressive TVA authority. And I, I don't know, that just rubbed me very much the wrong way. I think you're right. But I also think that the show wants us to have that discomfort and wants us to ask these questions as it prepares for, thank goodness, a season two. And my hope is that it will affirm choice and it will affirm punk rock chaos going forward and there will be some way that the Avengers and the Revengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy etc figure out how to find a world that has free will and also security that's my hope and until next time be kind be kind be kind